evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story. No Story by O. Henry To avoid having this book hurled into the corner of the room by the suspicious reader, I will assert in time that this is not a newspaper story. You will encounter no shirt-sleeved, omniscient city editor, no prodigy cub reporter just off the farm, no scoop, no story, no anything. But if you will concede me the setting of the first scene in the reporter's room of the morning, bacon, I will repay the favor by keeping strictly my promises set forth above. I was doing space work on the beacon, hoping to be put on a salary. Someone had cleared with a rake or a shovel a small space for me at the end of a long table, piled high with exchanges, congressional records, and old files. There I did my work. I wrote whatever the city whispered or roared or chuckled to me on my diligent wanderings about its streets. My income was not regular. One day Tripp came in and leaned on my table. Tripp was something in the mechanical department. I think he had something to do with the pictures, for he smelled of photographer's supplies and his hands were always stained and cut up with acids. He was about 25 and looked 40. Half of his face was covered with short, curly red whiskers that looked like a doormat with the welcome left off. He was pale and unhealthy and miserable and fawning and an assiduous borrower of sums ranging from 25 cents to a dollar. One dollar was his limit. He knew the extent of his credit as well as the Chemical National Bank knows the amount of H2O that collateral will show on analysis. When he sat on my table, he held one hand with the other to keep both from shaking. He had a spurious air of lightness and bravado about him that deceived no one but was useful in his borrowing because it was so pitifully and perceptibly assumed. This day I had coaxed from the cashier five shining silver dollars as a grumbling advance on a story that the Sunday editor had reluctantly accepted. So if I was not feeling at peace with the world... At least an armistice had been declared, and I was beginning with ardor to write a description of the Brooklyn Bridge by moonlight. Well, Trip, said I, looking up at him rather impatiently, how goes it? He was looking today more miserable, more cringing and haggard and downtrodden than I had ever seen him. He was at that stage of misery where he drew your pity so fully that you longed to kick him. Have you got a dollar? asked Trip with his most fawning look and his dog-like eyes that blinked in the narrow space between his high-growing, matted beard and his low-growing, matted hair. I have, said I, and again I said, I have, more loudly and inhospitably, and four besides. And I had hard work corkscrewing them out of old Atkinson, I can tell you. And I drew them, I continued, to meet a want, a hiatus, a demand, a need, an exigency, a requirement of exactly five dollars. I was driven to emphasis by the premonition that I was to lose one of those dollars on the spot. 
I don't want to borrow any, said Tripp, and I breathed again. I thought you'd like to get put onto a good story, he went on. I've got a rattling fine one for you. You ought to make it run a column at least. It'll make it dandy if you work it up right. It'll probably cost you a dollar or two to get the stuff. I don't want anything out of it myself. I became placated. The proposition showed that Tripp appreciated past favors, although he did not return them. If he had been wise enough to strike me for a quarter then, he would have got it. What is the story, I asked, poising my pencil with a finely calculated editorial air. I'll tell you, said Tripp. It's a girl. A beauty. One of the howlingest Amsden's Junes you've ever saw. Rosebuds covered with dew, violets in their mossy bed and truck like that. She lived on Long Island 20 years and never saw New York City before. I ran against her on 34th Street. She just got in on the East River Ferry. I tell you, she's a beauty that would take the hydrogen out of all the peroxides in the world. She stopped me on the street and asked me where she could find George Brown. Asked me where she could find George Brown in New York City. What do you think of that? I talked to her and found that she was going to marry a young farmer named Dodd, Hiram Dodd, next week. But it seems that George Brown still holds the championship in her youthful fancy. George had greased his cowhide boots some years ago and came to the city to make his fortune. But he forgot to remember to show up again in Greenberg and Hiram got in as second best choice. But when it comes to the scratch, Ada, her name's Ada Lowry, saddles a nag and rides eight miles to the railroad station and catches the 6.45 a.m. train for the city. Looking for George, you know, you understand. George wasn't there, so she wanted him. Well, you know I couldn't leave her loose in Wolf Town on the Hudson. I suppose she thought the first person she inquired of would say, George Brown? Oh, yes, let me see. A short man with light blue eyes? Oh, yes, you'll find George on 125th Street, right next to the grocery. He's Bill Clark in a saddle and harness store. That's about how innocent and beautiful she is. You know those little Long Island waterfront villages like Greenberg? A couple of duck farms far apart and, and clams and about nine summer visitors for industries? That's the kind of a place she comes from. But say, you ought to see her. What could I do? I don't know what money looks like in the morning. And she'd paid her last cent of pocket money for her railroad ticket, except a quarter, which she'd squandered on gumdrops. She was eating them out of a paper bag. I took her to a boarding house on 32nd Street where I used to live and hocked her. She's in soak for a dollar. That's old Miller McGinnis's price per day. I'll show you the house. What words are these, Trip? said I. I thought you said you had a story. Every ferry boat that crosses the East River brings or takes away girls from Long Island. The premature lines on Trip's face grew deeper. Browned seriously from his tangle of hair. He separated his hands and emphasized his answer with one shaking forefinger. Can't you see, he said. What a rattling fine story it would make. You could do it fine. All about the romance, you know. Describe the girl. Put a lot of stuff in it about true love and sling in a few stickfuls of funny business. Joshing the Long Islanders about being green and, well, you know how to do it. 
You ought to get $15 out of it anyhow. And it'll cost you only four. You'll make a clear profit of 11. How will it cost me four dollars? I asked suspiciously. One dollar to Mrs. McGinnis, Tripp answered promptly, and two dollars to pay the girl's fare back home. And the fourth dimension, I inquired, making a rapid mental calculation. One dollar to me, said Tripp. For whiskey. Are you on? I smiled enigmatically and spread my elbows as if to begin writing again. But this grim, abject, specious, subservient, burr-like wreck of a man would not be shaken off. His forehead suddenly became shiningly moist. Don't you see, he said with a sort of desperate calmness, this girl has got to be sent home today. Not tonight, nor tomorrow, but today. I can't do anything for her. You know, I'm the janitor and corresponding secretary of the Down and Out Club. I thought you could make a newspaper story out of it and went out a piece of money on general results. But anyhow, don't you see that she's got to get back home before night? And then I began to feel that dull, leaden, soul-depressing sensation known as the sense of duty. Why should that sense fall upon me as a weight and a burden? I knew that I was doomed that day to give up the bulk of my store of hard-wrung coin to the relief of this Ada Lowry. But I swore to myself that Drip's whiskey dollar would not be forthcoming. He might play knight-errant at my expense, but he would indulge in no sale afterward, commemorating my weakness and gullibility. In a kind of chilly anger, I put on my coat and hat. Trip, submissive, cringing, vainly endeavoring to please, conducted me via the streetcars to the human pawn shop of Mother McGinnis. I paid the fares. It seemed that the collodion-scented Don Quixote and the smallest minted coin were strangers. Trip pulled the bell at the door of the moldy red brick boarding house. At its faint tinkle, he paled and crouched as a rabbit makes ready to spring away at the sound of a hunting dog. I guessed what a life he had led, terror haunted by the coming footsteps of landladies. Give me one of the dollars, quick, he said. The door opened six inches. Mother McGinnis stood there with white eyes. They were white, I say, and a yellow face. Holding together at her throat with one hand a dingy pink flannel dressing sack, Tripp thrust the dollar through the space without a word, and it bought a entry. She's in the parlor, said the McGinnis, turning the back of her sack upon us. In the dim parlor, a girl sat at the cracked marble center table, weeping comfortably and eating gumdrops. He was a flawless beauty. Crying had only made her brilliant eyes brighter. When she crunched a gumdrop, you thought only of the poetry of motion and envied the senseless confection. Eve, at the age of five minutes, must have been a ringer for Miss Ada Lowry at nineteen or twenty. I was introduced, and a gumdrop suffered neglect, while she conveyed to me a naive interest, such as a puppy dog, a prize winner, might bestow upon a crawling beetle or a frog. Tripp took his stand by the table, with the fingers of one hand spread upon it, as an attorney or a master of ceremonies might have stood. But he looked the master of nothing. His faded coat was buttoned high, 
as if it sought to be charitable to deficiencies of tie and linen. I thought of a Scotch terrier at the sight of his shifty eyes in the glade between his tangled hair and beard. For one ignoble moment, I felt ashamed of having been introduced as his friend in the presence of so much beauty and distress. But evidently, Tripp meant to conduct the ceremonies, whatever they might be. I thought I detected in his actions and pose an intention of foisting the situation upon me as material for a newspaper story in a lingering hope of extracting from me his whiskey dollar. My friend, I shuddered. Mr. Chalmers, said Tripp, will tell you, Miss Lowry, the same that I did. He's a reporter, and he can hand out the talk better than I can. That's why I brought him with me. Oh, Tripp, wasn't it the silver-tongued orator you wanted? He's wise to a lot of things, and he'll tell you now what's best to do. I stood on one foot, as it were, as I sat in my rickety chair. Why, uh, Miss Lowry, I began, secretly enraged at Tripp's awkward opening. I am at your service, of course, but, um, as I haven't been apprised of the circumstances of the case, I, uh, oh, said Miss Lowry, beaming for a moment. It ain't as bad as that. There ain't any circumstances. It's the first time I've ever been in New York except once when I was five years old, and I had no idea it was such a big town. And I met Mr. Mr. Snip on the street and asked him about a friend of mine, and he brought me here and asked me to wait. I advise you, Miss Lowry, said Tripp, to tell Mr. Chalmers all. He's a friend of mine. I was getting used to it by this time, and he'll give you the right tip. Why, certainly, said Miss Ada, chewing a gumdrop toward me. There ain't anything to tell, except that, oh, well, Everything's fixed for me to marry Hiram Dot next Thursday evening. I's got 200 acres of land with a lot of shorefront and one of the best truck farms on the island. But this morning I had my horse saddled up. He's a white horse named Dancer. And I rode over to the station. I told him at home I was going to spend the day with Susie Adams. It was a story, I guess, but I don't care. And I came to New York on the train and I met Mr... Mr. Flip on the street, and I asked him if he knew where I could find... Now, Miss Lowry, broke in Tripp loudly, with much bad taste, I thought, as she hesitated with her words. You like this young man, Hiram Dodd, don't you? He's all right and good to you, ain't he? Of course I like him, said Miss Lowry emphatically. He's all right, and of course he's good to me. So is everybody. I could have sworn it myself. Throughout Miss Ada Lowry's life, all men would be too good to her. They would strive, contrive, struggle, and compete to hold umbrellas over her hat, check her trunk, pick up her handkerchief, buy her soda at the fountain. But, went on Miss Lowry, last night got to thinking about George, and I down went to bright gold head upon dimpled, clasped hands on the table. Such a beautiful April storm, unrestrainedly sobbed. I wished I could have comforted her, but I was not George, and I was glad I was not Hiram, and yet I was sorry too. By and by the shower passed. She straightened up, brave and halfway smiling. 
She would have made a splendid wife, for crying only made her eyes more bright and tender. She took a gumdrop and began her story. I guess I'm a terrible hayseed, she said between her little gulps and sighs. But I can't help it. George and I were sweethearts since he was eight and I was five. When he was nineteen, that was four years ago, he left Greenberg and went to the city. He said he was going to be a policeman or a railroad president or something, and then he was coming back for me, but I never heard from him anymore. And I... I liked him. Another flow of tears seemed imminent, but Tripp rolled himself into the crevasse and damned it. Confound him, I could see his game. He was trying to make a story of it for his sordid ends and profit. Go on, Mr. Chalmers, said he, and tell the lady what's the proper caper. That's what I told her. You'd hand it to her straight. Spiel up. I coughed and tried to feel less wrathful toward Trip. I coughed and tried to feel less wrathful toward Trip. I saw my duty. Cunningly, I had been inveigled, but I was securely trapped. Tripp's first dictum to me had been just and correct. The young lady must be sent back to Greenberg that day. She must be argued with, convinced, assured, instructed, ticketed, and returned without delay. I hated Hiram and despised George, but duty must be done. Noblesse oblige and only five silver dollars are not strictly romantic compatibles, but... Sometimes they can be made to jibe. It was mine to be Sir Oracle and then pay the freight. So I assumed an air that mingled Solomon's with that of the general passenger agent of the Long Island Railroad. Miss Lowry, said I as impressively as I could, life is rather odd, isn't it? There was a familiar sound of these words after I had spoken them, and I hoped Miss Lowry had never heard Mr. Cohen's song. Those whom we first love we seldom wed. Our earlier romances, tinged with the magic radiance of youth, often fail to materialize. The last three words sounded somewhat trite when they struck the air. But those fondly cherished dreams, I went on, may cast a pleasant afterglow on our future lives, however impracticable and vague they may have been. But life is full of realities as well as visions and dreams. One cannot live on memories. May I ask, Miss Lowry, if you think you could pass a happy, that is, a contented and harmonious life with Mr. Dodd, and if in other ways and romantic recollections he seems to uh, fill the bill, as I might say? Oh, he's all right, answered Miss Lowry. Yes, I could get along with him fine. He's promised me an automobile and a motorboat. But somehow, when it got so close to the time I was to marry him, I couldn't help wishing, just thinking about George. Something must have happened to him, or he'd have written. On the day he left, he and me got a hammer and a chisel and cut a dime into two pieces. I took one piece, and he took the other, and we promised to be true to each other and always keep the pieces till we saw each other again. I've got mine at home now, in a ring box in the top drawer of my dresser. I guess I was silly to come up here looking for him. I never realized what a big place it is. 
And then Trip joined in with a little grating laugh that he had. Still trying to drag in a little story or drama to earn the miserable dollar that he craved. All the boys from the country forget a lot when they come to the city and learn something. I guess George maybe is on the bum or got roped in by some other girl or maybe gone to the dogs on account of whiskey or the races. You listen to Mr. Chalmers and go back home and you'll be all right. But now the time was come for action, for the hands of the clock were moving close to noon. Frowning upon Trip, I argued gently and philosophically with Miss Lowry, delicately convincing her of the importance of returning home at once. And I impressed upon her the truth that it would not be absolutely necessary to her future happiness that she mentioned I the wonders or the fact of her visit to the city that had swallowed up the unlucky George. She said she had left her horse, unfortunate Rossinant, tied to a tree near the railroad station. Tripp and I gave her instructions to mount the patient's steed as soon as she arrived and ride home as fast as possible. There she was to recount the exciting adventure of a day spent with Susie Adams. She could fix Susie, I was sure of that, and all would be well. And then, being susceptible to the barbed arrows of beauty, I warmed to the adventure. The three of us hurried to the ferry, and there I found the price of a ticket to Greenberg to be but a dollar and eighty cents. I bought one and a red, red rose with the twenty cents for Miss Lowry. We saw her aboard her ferry boat and stood watching her wave her handkerchief at us until it was the tiniest white patch imaginable. And then Tripp and I faced each other, brought back to earth, left dry and desolate in the shade of the somber verities of life. The spell wrought by beauty and romance was dwindling. I looked at Tripp and almost sneered. He looked more careworn, contemptible, disreputable than ever. I fingered the two silver dollars remaining in my pocket and looked at him with the half-closed eyelids of contempt. He mustered up an imitation of resistance. Can't you get a story out of it? he asked huskily. Some sort of a story? Even if you have to fake part of it? Not a line, said I. I can fancy the look on Grimes' face if I should try to put over any slush like this. But we've helped a little lady out, and that'll have to be our only reward. I'm sorry, said Tripp almost inaudibly. I'm sorry you're out in your money. Now it seemed to me like a find of a big story, you know. That is, a sort of thing that would write up pretty well. Let's try to forget it, said I, with a praiseworthy attempt at gaiety. And take the next car cross town. I steeled myself against his unexpressed but palpable desire. He should not coax, cajole, or wring from me the dollar he craved. I'd had enough of that wild goose chase. Tripp feebly unbuttoned his coat of the faded pattern and glossy seams to reach for something that had once been a handkerchief deep down in some obscure and cavernous pocket. As he did so, I caught the shine. I caught the shine of a cheap silver-plated watch chain across his vest, and something dangling from it caused me to stretch forth my hand and seize it curiously. It was the half of a silver dime that had been cut in halves with a chisel. What? 
I said, looking at him keenly. Oh, yes, he responded dully. George Brown, alias Trip. What's the use? Barring the WCTU, I'd like to know if anybody disapproves of my having produced promptly from my pocket Trip's whiskey dollar and, and unhesitatingly laying it in his hand. We're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show, so you can listen all night long. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. If you find value in this podcast, be sure to show the love. There's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>